Good morning and welcome to the Changemakers podcast. I'm Kimberly Rice, Chief Changemaker of Changemakers, where we create bold careers and lives. Today, I could not be more excited than to welcome my guest, retired Vice Admiral Sandra Stowes of the U.S. Coast Guard. Sandy, welcome to our podcast this morning. Good morning, Kimberly, and thank you very much for having me today. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Um, so we're going to jump right in um, to our questions and interview. Um, Sandy has had the most distinguished career in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I can't wait to share her adventure and journey with our listeners and really all throughout the different change making opportunities and milestones that she had that she's going to share with us. So, Sandy, why don't you start with sharing with our listeners a bit about yourself and a few insights into your professional journey. All right, thanks for that opportunity, Kimberly. It's 40 years, so I'll try to condense it down real quick just to set the stage. So I was born and raised in a small town in Maryland called Ellicott City. I had three brothers. I was the eldest. I think that mattered because when it came time for me to go into a mostly male environment, I was already used to playing with the boys. I was a tomboy when I, when I was being raised. My parents raised us kids all the same. I think that set me off on a good track to go into the Coast Guard. And when I entered the academy in 1978, I was in the third class to have women. And I graduated four years later as a commissioned officer and went off to serve on an icebreaker. So I served a few years on polar icebreakers. I became a seagoing officer ended up doing 12 years at sea on different ships and was the first or only women on many of those ships. And eventually um, in between, I had shore assignments, uh, ended up commanding two of the ships, did 12 years at sea. And uh, in between, um, I commanded large units like the Coast Guard's boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. And then after that, as a, an admiral, I was the lead the head of the super, the superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. So those were wonderful opportunities to influence young people and give back a little bit after a full career uh, with uh, operational assignments. I felt good about giving back to young people and helping develop that next generation of leaders of character. And I retired in 2018 after 40 years in the uniform and have been uh, since then writing the book and volunteering on different boards and advisory councils. Wow. Wow, uh, lots of uh, lots of adventures, lots of change making. Um, I'm sure that there were a fair number of challenges, but one question that I have is what prompted, why the Coast Guard? Great, I'd like to tell that story because it's a good one. So I was born in 1960 for context and living there in Maryland, um, went to high school. So I started high school in 1974. And by then we had a lot of ground being broken for women, girls and women. So in 1972, we had Title IX, which gave equal opportunity in education to women. And in 1973, the Equal Rights Amendment. So when I started high school in 1974, girls had sports and coaches assigned to those sports. And I was able to turn from a very shy young, young girl and, and grow through um, success in sports to grow my confidence. It gave me confidence to then when the service academies, all of them were required by law to open their doors to women. 
I got word from the Baltimore Sun uh, that when they did an article on the Naval Academy that talked about how the Naval Academy was going to be opening its doors to women, I read that article uh, with great interest and thought, wow, what an opportunity. They've changed to go back to your theme on changing. They've changed the rules of engagement and I can now attend the Coast Guard Academy or the Naval Academy or West Point or the Air Force Academy or the Merchant Marine. And I applied to, to Naval Academy because it was right there in my backyard. And my guidance counselor, who had also been my swim coach, he said to me, Sandy, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. And I told him, well, PJ, I really want to go to the Naval Academy. This is a great opportunity, never before available to women. And he said, well, there's a Coast Guard up in New London. They've got an academy too. And between the two of us, we poured over a flyer that he'd gotten in the mail. <laughs> and um, we decided between the two of us, it was a small Navy. And of course, the Coast Guard is not a small Navy. But I applied there as a backup and then heard right away from the Coast Guard Academy that I've been accepted. So my mother said, take a bird in hand and go for it. So I accepted at the Coast Guard Academy and spent my four years there and in the third class of women. So it was one of the first uh, women my whole entire career because in the officer ranks, you advance according to your time in service. So I could never outrun that being the first. Mm. Would you have wanted to? I did at first. I really did not want to be the first woman to command a ship, the first or only woman, this or that, because it took attention. I thought I was always still very shy. And if I really outgrew that and an introvert, you know, so don't need all the attention, would rather put the attention on my crew and the Coast Guard. And I felt awkward with um, the newspapers wanting to interview me. So I would, though, eventually learn to accept it and turn the focus to the crew. So when they came on board to interview me, I would talk about the crew and I would talk about the Coast Guard missions. And of course, they're a lot more exciting. So while they were there for a human interest story on me, they got to learn more about the Coast Guard and I would highlight different crew members. So I tried to take that opportunity, that challenge, and turn it into an opportunity for the Coast Guard. And it worked out. I got used to it. Wonderful. It's something that sounds like you grew into, um, yes. which I think is one of the principles of change making is that we may not have the confidence or we may not have, you know, the so many women that we work with question, you know, am I is this enough? The whole, you know, is this enough question? And sometimes you just have to take where you are and work with it and move forward until you kind of grow into it. That's what we have found. And it sounds like that's what you did. It is what I did. And I tell you, you do it through perseverance. You don't just uh, give up because you can't have it your way. And very <laughs> few things in life can you have your way. <laughs> and a lot of us nowadays, there does seem to be um, a prevailing trend for people to want to have it their way and have it their way very quickly and have it their way without having to, here's my quote, get cold, wet, hungry, tired, and scared sometimes all at once. And that's what happens when you're at sea, when a storm or you're doing a case to rescue somebody. So I do think you have to embrace change and accept it as part of your life and look at it as an opportunity. And what I would say is be a change maker, not a change taker. A lot of people just take the change that someone else throws at them. So they're told they, they're going to be the first woman and they just take it and they suck it up and they complain about it. 
Well, be a change maker and make your own fate, make your own changes, make the most out of the changes you've got and actually start to then embrace the change and actually look for change. And that's when you know you've arrived as a change maker when you're looking for changes around the next corner. Exactly, exactly. So the length of your service enlistment, uh, you, you kind of fly past that 40 years um, and because it's so astoundingly impressive. Um, and thank you. I want to thank you for your service. Um, what I know there are many, many, but, you know, sometimes when we, you know, are in a situation for as, you know, the length of time that you were, what are several of the greatest takeaway lessons that you, in the culmination of your career, you learned and kind of have integrated into your life in the next chapter? I'm glad that you phrased it that way um, at the culmination of your career, because we all learn from experience. And when you're brand new, so when I started 40 years ago, I was brand new. And somebody might have asked me after a few years at the Coast Guard Academy where I was learning about leadership. And even as a junior officer in my first few years serving, I, they might have asked me, what do you think about leadership? What are your takeaways? Well, they'd be small because you're still experiencing your own story, creating your own outcomes. Uh, you're learning from senior people. But looking back, when I wrote the book, it was the most amazing experience because I got to look back on 40 years and I'd started doing this at something like the halfway point when I had enough behind me to really start feeling, feeling like I could give back leadership lessons. I started reflecting back and said, what do I, what did I learn along the way? And so I will say that uh, one of the things I learned early on um, that became more and more important as I got more senior was uh, something a boss of mine told me in my first unit when I was on an icebreaker going to Antarctica. And I was having a hard time with a crew member that I was supervising and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And I was trying to find a way to um, compel him to do his job. Do I use um, a carrot or a stick <laughs> or what? I went to my boss and I asked advice and he looked at me and said, Sandy, there's three kinds of power, personal power, professional power, and position power. And you're going to succeed as, in lead as a leader if you use the first two, professional power and personal power, as much as you can and lean on the last one, which is position power, only as a last resort. So I really learned from that. So you go down and you work with that crew member and you use personal power. You find out what is it that makes him tick? Why is he not interested in performing his duty? Why is he not unmotivated? And so you use that, you, you ask, you discover something about the person you're leading so that you can be a better leader. So that recipe of the three P's of power is something that I took my entire career and I, teach it to young people, because the sooner you learn that, the better off you are. I also, another takeaway was the critical importance of character and core values. And when I was young, um, learning my core values from my parents, my coaches, from working as a teenager on farm work, uh, on tobacco fields and cucumber farms up in the Connecticut River Valley in the summer times, earning money for college, I learned the value of hard work, perseverance, honesty, humility. Those were all core values that I learned in my youth 
then when I entered the Coast Guard, um, the Coast Guard had its own set of organizational core values. And those are honor, respect, and devotion to duty. So those core values all um, come out in you as your character. For better or worse, that's going to shape your character. So the values that shape your character uh, are so critically important. And I'm not sure we understand that well enough. Um, But that's another takeaway is help your young people when you're a more senior person to have opportunities to develop those personal core values and and, uh, make sure that your organization has core values because people coming into the workplace nowadays want to look on your website or whatever and want to see a mission, vision, and and core values. So if you don't have that, they don't know what kind of a company they're coming to work for. And a person's core values, their personal values, and an organization's values need to align or, or it's not a good fit. So I'll, I'll just leave it at those two takeaways of many, and many of them are in my book for any, anyone who wants to d- delve into this deeper. Awesome. Awesome. Those, that, those are so foundational, not only um, for every person as an individual, um, every person, woman in a uh, change-making journey, on a change-making journey, but um, in every aspect of life. So I, I have a question that I want to get to uh, what uh, your book that you alluded to just a few moments ago. But, you know, along the way, as you were in your service in the Coast Guard and you trap sounds like you traveled quite a bit. Um, I'm just curious how you also had a life outside of the Coast Guard. Um, and so I'm just curious, how did the Coast Guard journey impact you and your life outside of your job? Well, I came in 40 years ago and things were different then. There were different, I believe, um, conditions in society and uh, people had different expectations at work. So it was hard. I mean, we really um, had demanding jobs. I was at sea for 12 years. And when I was uh, on the shore jobs, I was working at least 12 hour days all my career. And uh, I made a choice early on not to get married or, or have kids because I knew I couldn't manage all that. Not that people didn't, but for me personally, and I think it's important to respect everybody's choice. And a lot of time we women judge each other terribly, you know, so a woman who's chosen not to have kids or get married gets judged that she failed and not having it all, you know, and, and then if you do have kids and you want to stay home and raise them, you get judged because you're copping out on your career is it's you can't win sometimes so I advocate for um, non-judgment so I chose to focus on my career and getting my job done and doing the best I could do and uh, and I'm happy with that Uh, so what I did though was really make an effort to make friends outside of work because I was at work so much and this became very valuable I made friends everywhere I went through my activities. So I would bike ride and, and join a biking club where there were other women um, who were going out, we'd meet for breakfast. I um, learned how to surf at one particular unit. Uh, Never, I can't surf. It's really hard, but I had fun doing these things. So I think it's really critical to have a robust personal life outside of your professional life, even if you're working really hard. And even if you don't feel like you can make time for big commitments like a family, make commitments that keep you balanced. And I've got a 
um, a little formula that's important, I think, is wellness, the wellness and exhaustion balance um, matrix. It's, uh, I call it um, four different kinds of exhaustion that you can encounter or wellness to balance them out. It's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And you're not going to be all the way up with full wellness and strength in all four areas at any given time, but neither should you be depleted in all areas. You need to understand those four elements of balance. And if you're having uh, an emotional and mental hard time at work with a bad boss or just tough challenges, then work on your physical, go work out, work on your spiritual balance, whatever that means to you. And then you can keep a level of balance where you're not completely depleted to where you quit or go into a health um, situation. So I'll, I'll leave the answer at that. Thank you. That's fantastic. Um, it is important to have balance. It is easy to get lost in when you have such an all-consuming career, and it is challenging, um, particularly, I would say, for women, because we are still considered the primary caretakers, and we are the uniquely anatomically equipped um, uh, gender to um, produce families. And so uh, I respect, I, in fact, I'm in awe of women um, who do work full time, whatever that looks like outside of their home and still have children and, and continue forward to have children. Um, it's, I, I didn't do that, <laughs> but I, particularly since the pandemic um, and everything was working from home, I'm like, I don't even know how you do this um, and still do your job and focus. And so I, you know, I think we owe uh, mothers, um, a debt of gratitude that there's, it's priceless. There's, there's no amount of money that you can put on uh, what they do day in and day out. Um, so let's talk about your, your brand new book. You just published your first book, which I love the name of Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. Give us a sense of what the readers can expect when they open this up and dive into it. Well, the book is, uh, you might be able to figure out by now based on my experience over 40 years, my stories, uh, it starts out breaking ice and breaking glass, leading in uncharted waters, based on the fact that I was one of the first women to come into the Coast Guard. And then I served right away for three years on icebreakers and actually then commanded a smaller icebreaker up on, on Lake Superior. So I had a lot of the, the breaking ice in the literal and the figurative way by being one of the first women. And I don't like to dwell on that or make it the center, but I can't escape it. And it actually gave me a great perspective. So the leadership lessons that I give back through stories and experiences are designed to be of value to anybody from the entry level to the executive suite. And they're uh, designed to be able to help people lead and succeed with character. It's a character-centered leadership book. And I think that people will find it readable because it's stories. It's not just here's leadership principles that you should know. It's something you can learn from reading and seeing how somebody else managed a situation. So I think it's a great um, opportunity for people to build their character-centered leadership through a book that's very readable and, and a good thing to bring out in the summertime. And, and you can sit down and read that like you would a story. Mm. 
well, I can't wait to um, jump right into it. Uh, it's on my it's on my list for sure. Um, let's talk about a moment about change making um, specifically. <clears throat> and I know that you know being one of the first women to um, join the Coast Guard was a huge deal um, back in a time when the opportunities were just not there for women at that level in, or in that in that profession. But when we look at it from a change-making point of view through the course of your career, you know, aside from being the first woman, which was, of course, you know, magnificent and trailblazing, what did change look like in your world uh, when you were a part of, you know, a day-to-day -day different assignment, a different assignment, overseeing troops who are who are likely men, all men or mostly men, what did that look like in the position that you held? Well, one thing I'll start out with that is unique to the military. Well, not really always unique to the military, but certainly characterizes military services. We rotate assignments a lot. So I lived, I think I moved 21 different times mm -hmm. and that means that you're changing every couple of years. So I, most of my assignments were two years long. I had one that was three years and one that was four, but whatever, you're changing all the time. And so the first time you get assigned to a, a new unit, the first couple of times you're apprehensive and you're getting assigned to Eureka, California, a small little town, or you're getting assigned to a great big city. So you, you learn from experience that change isn't as bad as it sounds and you get used to it. We talked about this earlier in the episode. So I learned to, to recognize that change always has an opportunity. So each one of those places I lived, even if I was apprehensive about a small town or a big city, I loved each one. I found lots to like about it and became um, interested in looking for the opportunities, not being afraid of the challenges. And so that created in me an entire mindset of embracing change and actually looking for ways to change things for the better, not to change for the sake of change, um, but to change things to make them better. And usually when you move into a new place of work, like we do in the military all the time, there's a baseline where you enter and there's ways to move it forward. So we all wanna carry the ball a little bit further down the field to make uh, the place we are at better. And you can't do that if you just sit there and static and just be a steward. So I never wanted to be a steward of any of the units that I was leading. I wanted to be changing them for the better. And you meet resistance immediately, immediately when you come to a, a new job and you wanna make change. So I think people need to be aware of that. And they leaders have to understand that their subordinates are for the most part, not going to want to embrace change and even their peers uh, or their su supervisors if they're a mid-grade person who wants to change. So I came up with a um, way of looking at change that I think uh, is good for everybody who's facing change and is develop a culture and a mindset of anticipating what's going to be ahead. So life is never static. The environment we live in is never static and COVID showed us all that if we didn't oh proof already. So anticipate what might come and, and, and then ad adapt yourself to be ready for that. And then when it does come to a change that you've anticipated or before it even hits you, you've anticipated it, you've adapted your mind to be that 
that receptive, you adjust um, your environment so that you're ready when that change hits, or if you wait until the change comes, you adjust your procedures to adapt to it. And, and, and then you, um, you anticipate again, you're, or excuse me, you're agile in there. You have to be very agile to anticipate what's going to come and agile to, to um, respond. So there's that cycle of a continuum of um, anticipating, adjusting, adapting, and being agile, and then anticipating all over again. And if you can create a culture where you're thinking of it that way as a um, continuum of, uh, of excellence, then it becomes um, something that you embrace, not something that you shrink away from. Mm. Well, I believe you have just explained my next question, but I'm going to um, hold that for just a moment. And um, circle back around to something fascinating that you said just a moment ago, which I think we can reinforce. And that is one of the things that that really deeply impacted me to launch Changemakers is our mission to educate and equip women professionals to take bold action to chart their careers and their lives. And one of the things that you just mentioned is that when you move from position to position and advanced, that you were met, met, not you specifically, but the change that you brought was met, met with resistance, mm -hmm. um, which is understandable. And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. But when, what did that career advancement look like for you, um, you know, while you were in the Coast Guard um, as you moved up through the ranks? The career advancement. So every few years, you as an officer come up on a promotion point where you're evaluated and compared against your peers for a selection opportunity. And these are never 100% selection. They're normally 70 to 80% selection. So a lot of people don't make it through. So you're continually trying to keep on top of your game so that you're performing at the best of your ability so that you'll be selected to continue in service. So as far as how that relates to change, you're continually having to adapt and be agile to meet the needs of the service so that you're performing the, the right way so that you're getting the missions done. If you're just being a steward and sitting back and waiting for things to happen, that's not in the Coast Guard's nature. Our motto is Semper Paratus, which means always ready. So that right there says that we're ready for change. We're looking ahead. And it's not that it's not going to stop people from not wanting to change because it's human nature not to. But I think it's great that the Coast Guard has that culture already embedded that we're change-centric to some extent by virtue of our mission, being ready to go and take care of our mission. And um, you just have to make sure that that, that motto, Semper Paratus, doesn't just mean when the call to duty comes, we are ready to respond. It also means when we think we see something looming on the horizon, we're ready to make the changes necessary to be the organization that is nimble, agile, to go back to my word, and ready to perform those missions better. Yes, exactly. And that isn't, um, that doesn't always respond to our um, greatest impulses to resist the change. And so therein lies the conflict, right? I mean, and it, the leadership. So you mentioned this four-step change-making formula 
the anticipate, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, anticipate, adapt, adjust, and be agile. Maybe I have them out of order. That's, that's right. Um, so, uh, which is fantastic. I mean, it's just when we think about um, our journeys, our professional journeys in the accumulative sense, um, you know, if we don't do those things, then um, likely that we're not going to make it uh, to where we think we want to go. But I would love to hear your perspective on when you implement uh, on that change making formula, you know, how, how did that inform your leadership development? And how do you feel like, and how have you seen that help others develop a more fulfilling career? When you're going to implement a change, you've got to make sure you communicate so that people understand why. Why are we changing? Because people are hesitant and they don't want to change for the sake of change because some new boss coming in wants to make their mark and all they're looking to do is change something to make their mark for their performance report so they can get promoted to go back to your question about rising up through the ranks and, and um, being agile to, to respond to what's needed. So people have a suspicion if they're used to doing things a certain way, now you're going to threaten them with this change. And is it just because you want to create your mark? Explain why you need the change. And as a leader, that's your job is to set the vision for the organization, explain why, where the opportunities are, where the challenges are, and how you have to change to achieve those before somebody else above you who's overseeing you, whether it's a board of directors in a private sector company, or it's Congress and the administration in a government organization like the Coast Guard, you're going to get terms dictated to you if you don't take the initiative to change. So you have to explain it. And then you have to be aware that there are lots of people who will lose out on, on a change. They will perceive they're going to lose, uh, or they really might lose some power because a lot of times a change will impact one particular element of an organization more than another, but it's for the greater good. But nobody who's in charge of an independent element, so say call them silos, everyone protects their silos or their rice bowls, whatever term you're used to hearing. And they're not gonna give up their rice bowl or sacrifice a piece of rice out of that bowl, even if it makes the entire organization all that much better. So you have to be aware there's that mindset and you have to get in there and find out how those people are. And if they're not gonna be on board, you've gotta change them out and put somebody in place who's gonna, gonna be on board. And then you've gotta start with the change and you, got, you can't just let the change go on forever without showing any results. Like, don't worry, we're gonna have great results in a year when this takes place. No, you've gotta show people quick early wins. So you've got to orchestrate quick wins. So you need to come in as a leader and have like a hundred day plan and you have in there, here's a couple of quick hitter things I wanna accomplish to build trust in the change in the process that we're going through. Hmm. That is just some rock solid uh, insight and wisdom right there, folks. Um, so one of the things that I love to ask our guests is if you could give your younger self one piece of professional advice, what would that be? My piece of advice to myself would definitely be believe in yourself. Don't, um, try to become something you're not just because 
somebody counsels you, you're too quiet, you need to be a boisterous, loud leader with a hammer. Uh, I was always the kind of leader who wanted to um, earn trust, earn respect every day. I didn't need to come in and, and bark orders. I would rather have people want to follow me because they trusted and respected me, not because they feared me. So I wish someone had told me that be confident in who you are. You're a quiet person, but that's okay. Quiet people have their way of leading. Loud, boisterous people have their way of leading. There's no right or wrong. Just be a good leader and believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to believe in others? So I spent a lot of time trying to believe in myself as a shy, less than confident person. And I think it was a great journey though. So I do wish that somebody had told me earlier, don't worry about this, uh, be yourself, but how that's easy to say, but you have to go through a process of seeing that you can do it, seeing that your style of leadership works. You have to have that feedback as opposed to somebody senior or wise coming in and telling your younger self, here's what you should do. That's why it's hard um, to lead or be led because so much of it's experiential. If it was just senior people like me telling people, here's what you should do, we wouldn't have to worry about going through a leadership development process, right. but people have to learn right through their own experience. And it can be informed by the wisdom of older people who can come back and tell them um, what, what they think are, are good pieces of advice, but um, don't be afraid of the, uh, to believe in yourself and to go through the experiences necessary to discover the leader you're meant to be. Mm, awesome, awesome advice. And we all, we all have it in us. Right. Yeah. I, I say all the time, we all have change makers inside of us. We all have leaders inside of us. It's a matter of tapping into activating um, and getting in touch with that inner leader who is within us and being open um, to having that be developed within us. Um, I have found most things is that, you know, we're all relatively a, a, an intelligent people is, is the receptivity of wanting, of, 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 of agreeing and being open to learn um, and being shown the way. I mean, we can pretty much learn any, anything. I mean, don't put me in an OR anywhere, but <laughs> anyway. So after, Sandy, this is so fascinating. Um, and, and you're just spewing out wisdom on top of wisdom on top of wisdom, which is just amazing. And so um, useful for our listeners today. I'm just curious, you know, all my grandfather used to say all work and no play makes Tom a dull boy. Um, so after your distinguished career and, and you have so honorably retired, what are you doing for fun these days? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, anybody who thinks that writing a book isn't that hard or that the hardest part of writing the book is writing it. I got a news for them. <laughs> a full-time job and usually when you were in the workplace you were probably fortunate to have some kind of admin support somebody did the accounting for the organization you were in somebody might have made travel arrangements or there was a travel contract travel office or there was somebody who was keeping your schedule or at least helping you <laughs> this is all on you now when you retire so there's a lot of work uh, in writing a book and i also volunteer for six or seven boards and advisory councils and each one of those adds its little bit to the to the um, straw that breaks the camel's back. So be careful what you um, agree to volunteer for. So I'm not working for pay, 
but I am doing all that it takes to be an author with promoting my book and with volunteering for these organizations. It's all about giving back for me, but even just the giving back part, I thought, ah, this will be easy. I'll be giving back at my own pace. I'll have plenty of time for myself. Finally, all these things I put in the parking lot when I was on active duty, I can now start to do. So it's not really that way. I still want to make an impact. I still feel like I'm pretty young. I'm only 61. So I'm still not getting as much down time as I want, but my husband and I do make it a point to get out in our fishing canoe more often. We have a three-week vacation every year that we take in Maine. I'm working out more and uh, cooking more, which I like to do, making better meals. So I'm finding little ways to make sure that I add that balance to my life, even though I was kind of surprised to find that I'm still working a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Make sure that I got the some of those things in there that are on the to-do list for fun mm. are in there every single day. That's awesome. I can empathize with the book writing. I've, <laughs> I've published a couple and um, the writing part is actually maybe some would argue the easier part of the whole project, um, but it's a labor of love, right? Right. I agree. <laughs> and giving back and making an impact and helping others. Right. So Sandy, I wanted to give you an opportunity to offer anything. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm so delighted and, and uh, honored that you've joined us today to share your distinguished career in the, in the Coast Guards. Uh, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. One of the questions that I have um, that you mentioned a couple of times, maybe someone else has it also, is can you explain exactly what an icebreaker is? <laughs> In the, in the literal sense, I know what it is in the figurative sense. I leave these all the time, but in the literal sense, when you're in Antarctica, what does that look like? I wish I had a picture to hold up and show right now of an icebreaker. So a polar icebreaker is a f- about a 400 foot red ship. The Coast Guard has the Polar Star. It's got the Healy too big red icebreakers that have a lot of power. They're rounded hulls, uh, kind of shaped like a football to be able to ride up on the ice and crush it with their weight and then have a a large propulsion plant to push them through it. And they look for cracks in the ice field that they can use as pressure release valves, so to speak, to navigate through the ice. They break the ice to either like down in Antarctica, supply the National Science Foundation station in McMurdo, Antarctica, Antarctica being the South Pole. They break in through the channel to get the escort ships that give fuel and food down there in the winter. They'll break ice to do science research in Antarctica and up in the Arctic, the same thing. Break through the ice to do scientific research and, uh, and maintain a national security presence up there. Gotcha. Fascinating. Didn't know that. Thank you very much. Um, so is there anything additional that you would like to share with our listeners um, that we've not already covered anything at all? Sure. I'll just pass on my mantra. I guess once in a while people will come up with something that resonates that they can be short and concise about. So I've got a mantra that is be brave. And that means show the moral courage to do the right thing always. Believe in yourself and others. And then become the leader of character you're meant to be. So I leave readers with that. Be brave, believe, and become. That's very juicy. A lot of aspirational uh, wisdom right there. Um, and then lastly, Sandy, I want would love for our listeners to be able to get in connection 
with you, um, you know, maybe for other speaking opportunities or whatever else. So what is the best way that our listeners can connect with you? The best way is on my website. I'm blessed to have had a wonderful website designer. So www.sandrastows, all one word.com. And it will have a tab on my book, a tab on my media events, a tab on myself, a press kit, um, my newsletter. So I have a weekly blog called Leading with Character. And every week there's a lesson that gets sent out to anybody on my mailing list. It's published through Homeland Security Today, a trade publication. So I encourage everyone to go to the website, sign up for my mailing list and find out all about breaking ice and breaking glass, leading in uncharted waters. Wonderful, wonderful. That is a, is a labor of love, I'm sure. And um, so many um, lessons of change-making and leadership um, that particularly women professionals, but I'm sure everyone can learn from and uh, help be the North Star in their career and life. But thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us today. And I uh, want to thank our listeners, our Changemaker listeners, uh, for joining us today. And until next time, you want to make sure that you are the change that you want to see in this world. That's great advice. Thank you, Kimberly.